0: This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. How are your hearing aids sounding now? A little tinny. Okay, two seconds. With Jabra Enhance Select's premium package, better hearing doesn't happen in a doctor's office. It happens at home, all done remotely from initial testing to adjustments. How are they sounding now? Fantastic. You get the same advanced hearing aid technology and professional support you expect from a clinic at a fraction of the cost. And if you have any issues, we'll make adjustments seven days a week, no charge. Oh, you people are wonderful. Our premium package includes hearing aids, three years of follow-up care, plus a three-year warranty with loss and damage coverage. And a 100-day money-back guarantee. I hear better than I ever thought possible. And now, for a limited time, save $100 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to and our promo code PODCAST to save. Jabraenhanced.com, code PODCAST.
1: For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Niklas Ansinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We'll discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August 9th in 2023, and my guest is Dwarkesh Patel. Dwarkesh is the host of the awesome podcast called The Lunar Society, where he interviews intellectuals, scientists, historians, economists, and founders about their big idea. There's a lot of overlap between our podcasts, and I listen to it regularly. Dwarkesh features frontier technologists, similar to the ones that come on this podcast. He had Alex Tabarrok, Brian Kaplan, Robin Hansen on. So there's a lot to talk about, what interests we have in common, what we're curious about, the messages we want to convey to our listeners and what we learned from them. In particular, there's one interesting debate that I wanted to talk with Dvakesh about, the debate about existential risk of artificial intelligence, where we have a bit of a disagreement, but I really enjoy these debates with
0: other people that are friendly and think rationally. So, Dwarkesh, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk to you, man. I will say, by the way, that the podcast is now the Dwarkesh podcast, no longer The Lunar Society. Got it. While it the Lunar Society was a cool name, I realized it was just
1: adding confusion. So would you recommend sort of giving it your name as a brand or is uh, how did you make the decision?
0: Well, having your name is weird because if you're emailing people, come on my podcast, it's weird to say, hey, I would love to have you on the Warkesh podcast. So <laughs> uh, it is a bit self-aggrandizing, but the problem with the Lunar Society is it just had nothing to do really with, I mean, th- th- there was no obvious reason that that would mm-hmm, be, mm. you would think of that name when you thought of the podcast. So just to simplify things. Okay. Um, but but how's, has stranded technologies been useful to you as a, as a brand name? Yeah, I'm curious myself. I don't do a lot of customer research on it, really, and how
1: people perceive it. But it, it's kind of a thesis-driven podcast. So Australian Technologies really is a thesis that I'm exploring throughout the podcast. So I do feel there is a value to it having been named as the thesis instead of just myself. Yeah, I can see cases for both.
0: Yeah. But how did you get into podcasting? I was 19 and I was a sophomore in college. And this was when COVID hit. So classes went online. And I was really bored. And then so I decided to try it out. I, Brian Kaplan, he, he's the kindest person ever. He was my first guest. He agreed to come on as the inaugural. And yeah, from there, kind of just kept it going through college. Never really thought I'd be doing it full time until very recently. or And then more recently, it's really gotten a lot of traction. And so just trying to see where I can take it. Yeah. So it evolved into a full time job for you. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I studied computer science. I was expecting to be, you mm-hmm, know, a mm-hmm. code monkey or a startup founder or something. Somewhere in that spectrum of code monkey to start a founder. But yeah, I didn't, uh, didn't expect to be a podcaster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why do you do it and what do you enjoy about it? There's, you get to learn a lot, which I'm sure you're, is one of the perks for you as well. I do think there's a lot of ideas that are out there, but they're not necessarily widely available. And this was not necessarily the case in the beginning of the podcast when the guest was way more famous or way bigger, had a way bigger platform than I did. But more recently, there's been a few episodes where the person interviewing doesn't necessarily themselves have a big platform, but their idea should be more widely spread. And people have really enjoyed hearing from them. You know, it's really great to kind of elevate somebody's ideas. But the biggest benefit for me personally, honestly, is just the learning. You're literally your full time job is learning shit. So it's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think that's what makes your podcast stand out so much because you, you seem very, very curious and you ask very good questions that many of the people that come on your show haven't been asked before. Yeah. What else would you say is defining about your podcast?
0: It's kind of weird. I've always had trouble talking about the podcast when somebody who doesn't know about the podcast, when I meet them, um, they'll ask, what do you do? And I'll say, I have a podcast. And they'll say, oh, what is it about? And now it's even more awkward, right? Because I'm going to be like, oh, it's called the Warkesh Podcast. But, uh, but then they'll say, you know, what is it about? And I don't know. I say I, I interview people recently, a lot of AI people. But just, the, the, so that, I don't know if there's a def- defining thing about the podcast. Other than I try to ask good questions. I try to ask questions I actually have. I, and there's a whole bunch of uh, different tricks that I'm sure you and I would have a good time discussing about how to pick good questions. But yeah, I mean, what what do you think is the defining thing? I've had trouble kind of defining the defining thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a similar kind of interest in technology and the future and accelerationism, if you will. And Mm -hmm. a bit of a contrarian bent to it, right? So you're inviting thinkers that aren't necessarily like in the mainstream that are really kind of at the frontiers of knowledge with ideas that are not yet accepted by the
0: mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And is that how you define your own as well? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean it, come, it kind of comes with the territory of being in yeah. technology. It's kind of what it should be, in my opinion, right? right? I always find it weird to talk to normies. Right. <laughs> so it's in a way also just following my own curiosity, but it's also again thesis driven. So right. I'm specifically looking for this kind of regulatory theme, right? So where's mm-hmm. this a particularly barrier and what can we learn from others that, about overcoming and these barriers? So how how can we do it, and what helps us understand where they are there in the first place, and what we can um, what we can be do to uh, innovate faster,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that certainly is one of the things I'm very interested in, um, and ha- have done a lot of episodes about. Yeah, I guess that would be a theme. Um, yeah, like, that we share. Would
1: you say or or could you say what are the most defining episodes that you can think of or the ones that you would give people to, hey, if you want, this is the first episode you should listen to if you want to know what it's about or that, you know, makes you, that can help you decide whether it's something that's for you, that you like.
0: Yeah, it's funny because these are not necessarily the most popular episodes, but I do have a list in my mind. Carl Schulman, the recent episodes and for the audience, um, it's this guy who you probably haven't heard of before, but he's just a thinker who has been accumulating a lot of interesting world models that are rigorous and technical, not just about AI, but just generally about the history of economic growth and of civilization. That I feel was a, an amazing episode. It really changed my world model in a lot of different ways. Lars said, I don't know if you, I think we, did we talk about this episode at some point? I was but actually he's, just talking
1: to Will Jarvis, who's a friend of oh his. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that was great. Um, By the way, he's so for the audience, he's a Georgist, which means he thinks we should tax land and potentially nothing else. And the reason it was interesting and the thing I enjoy most, the episodes I enjoy most is when somebody comes in with not just these sorts of incremental marginal updates on uh, the way you're thinking about a problem, but just let's start from the beginning what is value added to the economy? Where is the value coming from? Who adds value? Who is extracting rent? And that's where you begin the debate or the conversation. Um, and that's where it begins with the Georgist. And so you, then you start from those first principles. Um, that's why I enjoyed it a lot, even though it's not necessarily my usual tech stuff. Are there other conversations? I, I always have a lot of fun talking with Tyler. Um, and he's just a lot of fun to talk to. That was great. Um, Ilya Sutskever and Dario Amadei, who were two pioneers of um, deep learning in AI, and now uh, each respectively the chief scientist of OpenAI and the CEO of Anthropic. Those were a lot of fun. Um, yeah, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So you just selected it based on your curiosity and kind of your audience gravitated towards that in the process. What, what yep, observations yep. did you make about the audience that you built in the process?
0: Oh, as in terms of what the audience finds interesting about those? Yeah. I was really um, pleased to find how much the audience enjoy the Shulman episodes. And I think in general, we underestimate the audience. And this is a good escape mechanism for content creators. I don't know if there's a less cringe term for what we're doing. but um, Because if if you're not doing well, uh, then you can always blame, oh, well, there's not a lot of people interested in good content. And that just falls. There's a lot of people who are making amazing content that gets hundreds of thousands, millions of views. And so it's just cope to. Um, so I was really impressed at, um, and really pleased that the audience really enjoyed this deeply technical episode about the, the intelligence explosion and the specific models and parameters and uh, how, how fast can software accelerate? What are the hardware constraints? What are the algorithmic progress that's possible? I mean, it was it was a deep episode, and a lot of people seemed to enjoy it, which I was pleased by. Mm-hmm.
1: How are you able to find the audience, or how's the able, audience able to find you or gravitate towards you? Because you can do the greatest content in the world, write a super good book, you invest all your time is getting the content, the quality of the content right? So academics do that a lot or think they do, and they then invest <laughs> no time really in the communication or dissemination of these ideas. Yeah:
0: Yeah, no, this is something I've literally in the last week or two, been thinking way harder about and spending a lot more time on. And I've realized the job is not just to do great interviews. The job is to expose more people to those interviews, whether that's through, that's through clips or other things. I mean, you had to ask the question, how are people discovering your content? So one is they're being recommended by others. But I don't know, I was making the mistake where on YouTube, I would just publish a full episode. That's three hours or something. And no clips, right? And somebody who doesn't know who you already are is not going to just sign up for a three-hour episode. I think the main vector so far has been um, word of mouth. I don't know what it's been for you.
1: Yeah, similar. And I also find that guests bring a bit their audience, right? When I think of myself and how I listen to podcasts, I really just look for guests, right? Mm. And when I find someone that's interesting, I really listen to, you know, try everything that I find interesting that they say somewhere. And through them, I then find a podcast. And then it's often like, oh, there's other interesting people on there that I don't know yet. But the podcast yeah. then gets interesting for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that that actually is a good big one as well. I think um, I've been lucky and uh, people have been really nice in coming on the podcast and helping promote it. So that's definitely helped.
1: Since you already talked so much about Carl Schulman, can you talk a bit about that episode and what you found so fascinating about it or learned
0: from it? The main update to me was thinking about AI progress, not necessarily in years, but in terms of um, compute. And so you can have on the x-axis, the amount of flops that we're putting into the biggest models. And you can update that a little bit by saying effective flops, because with algorithmic progress, the, um, the performance you're able to get out of the models improves even with the same compute that you put into it. Anyways, so you put this on the x-axis, and then you see, okay, we're going through order of magnitudes of flops in terms of what we're putting into the what biggest models. Um, floating point operations per second, GPT four, I believe, is two, uh, two to the twenty-five uh, flops, and this this is a great benchmark that's really useful because then you can say, I, I forgot, like what what GPT three was probably a tenth or a hundredth of that, so. 2 to the 23rd or 2 to the 24th. Like speed of retrieval of information or something like that? It's it, it just like literally the total amount of training. So if GPT-4 is trained for a year and it's trained on tens of thousands of GPUs, if you add up all the amount of compute that was spent on that, uh, this is just a way of measuring the total amount of compute. Um, and the reason it's an interesting benchmark is that you can compare it to... How, how many flops can we estimate the brain is using? How many flops was evolution on the top end um, if you wanted to simulate all of evolution? And then you can, it's also interesting because then you can plot these scaling curves of, as you increase how much compute you're throwing at these models, how does their performance improve? And so these are, these are really smooth scaling curves where you can predict in advance multiple orders of magnitude away. If you 100x the model, this will be the performance. And which is really impressive that you can do that. Um, And so the update to me was realizing, oh, we've been doing like six orders of magnitude increases over the last however many years, you know, last 10 years since the advent of deep learning, probably more than six orders of magnitude. And we could feasibly do another four, five, six, especially if you're counting effective flops because algorithms will get better. Okay, now you add all that up. Do you really think that with another five orders of magnitude of improvement, these things couldn't get significantly better? And when they do, um, what does a dynamic look like where large parts of the work at OpenAI or something like that are being done by the AI itself? And so it's speeding up AI progress as it gets better. You add that all that up, and it's a really new way of thinking about this sort of exponential increase in intelligence. Okay. And you said it also touched on the hardware component of that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, oh, f- the, the the compute is getting cheaper as well, which is another mm-hmm. important component, which is another reason why you can forecast why we'll be able to put more compute in these models in the future. I forget. I'm forgetting the exact numbers on this, but there, uh, Epoch AI did a sort of graph of how fast the computer is getting cheaper. Um, so uh, however much it costs to train a model on H100, how much uh, it would cost way more to train on an A100, which is the older chip, and way more to train on a chip even older than that. Anyways, you project this forward and you see, okay, well, how much will the compute require to train a human-level model? How much lower will that be by the time we're training a human-level model? Um, and yeah, so that, that's where the hardware progress comes in. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by a human-level model? Yeah, that's, a. I mean, that's a good question. So, and in fact, even humans d- d- differ in their intelligence, right? So in some sense, these are already human level in like the lower end of the human spectrum, or some, some of the things humans do. Uh, a good benchmark might be, well, when they can basically re- replace a researcher at OpenAI. And that's probably way far away. And by, 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 it depends on what you mean by way far, right? <laughs> in, in in these uh, timelines, uh, 10 years is way far away. But yeah, um, uh, but then they can start doing more and more menial tasks and taking up um by as a spectrum, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm very
1: interested because that's often like in debates about DI the, the core about disagreement, right? What do we mean by human like intelligence or yeah. human like behavior or what is like a mind, which is a deeply philosophical question, right? I heard your interview with Michael Humer on your podcast as well. Have you yeah. been reading up more on his work or or I, no, I haven't. Has, has he been talking about LLMs? He he, he ta- talked a bit about LLMs, yes. And he actually, mm. um, that was kind of the point that I was making in my essay, giving support to the argument that Mark Andreessen made about the category error problem. Right. So he was much more clear on that and sort of showing that with like an example that's very famous in practical philosophy that's called the Chinese Room. Have you heard about yeah. that one? Yeah. 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 Um, but he generally also influenced me a lot, right? So, And and I was listening to him for the first time on your podcast. Mm. And I was still not kind of getting it because he was just so colloquially talking about these really big questions that I thought you'd have to just use all this fancy language to even be allowed to talk about it, And he just talked so colloquially about it. But yeah. then I looked into his book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, and it turned out to be the best philo- philosophy epistemology book I ever read. Yeah, I I've been reading that like about that stuff for fifteen years. And this is clearly someone who has achieved mastery over the subject. Yeah. He has several books where he can go solve like super technical mathematical questions about what we mean by like infinity. Yeah. And it's able to solve like philosophical paradoxes. And I was like, wow, okay, the guy has really achieved some form of mastery there. And then I was basically voraciously consuming all the content that he ever produced that influenced my thinking a lot.
0: Yeah, what, what did I have to say about, and by the way, my, yeah, he, his stuff is great. I, I really enjoyed reading all that in preparation for him. Um, but yeah, what did I have to say about uh, LLMs? I, I haven't been keeping up. Yeah, Which mean, just generally um, the category error.
1: Yeah, so the idea is, or what you wrote in your essay, is if we sort of achieve all these orders of magnitudes increase in the LLMs kind of ability to perform certain tasks, how can this not be something like a mind? right? Or like the human mind. And what he would write in response is using an example from John Searle, who was a famous philosopher called the Chinese room, which basically says, right, what if you put a person in a room and you give them like an instruction book of like the Chinese language, but the person doesn't speak Chinese? but and then you put in like a task inside, hey, answer that question in Chinese to me. And the person doesn't know the answer, but he's just like a monkey typing in on a page, sort of following the rules in the rule book and then passing it out again. And then after like a million years, it's the right answer, right? And that's, but does it mean he understands Chinese, right? So not really, right? So and the point. Well, this- I would
0: say that the system of the book and the person understands Chinese. Um, in fact, if you looked at, a person who does understand Chinese, if you were to deconstruct their brain, at some level the things are going to be. It is going to be some trivial system. Like if you just look at the neuron to neuron connection, and it'll just be like add up all these uh, neurotransmitters and this a signal that's propagated by them. It has to boil down to something simple at the at the um, reductionist level. Um, it, it's at the system level where you can say the thing understands Chinese, yeah. and so yeah, Th- that's pretty much the bullet on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what you'd assume when you're a physicalist, right? So that there's always kind of this physical substrat of whatever is happening. And then he would answer, well, how do we know that that process gets us there, right? Because right now, neural networks aren't really neural networks. They
0: don't really function like the human mind functions, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's true. But also, this is the famously that the planes don't exactly function as birds do, and they can still achieve flight. Um And to the extent that, I mean, we know from evolution that a sort of gradual process of, uh, you know, gradients updating and just gradually improving on intelligence is a process that's possible. And so it's not implausible to me that another way of finding these gradients and doing hill climbing through neural networks would get you that same sort of end result or a similar sort of end result.
1: Well, the plane is a good example, right? So yes, it can fly, but it isn't a bird, right? (laughs) So yeah, what yeah. makes you think that's kind of adding up other tasks that the plane could do, like mating with another plane or
0: something like that, would eventually get it to be a bird? So in this analogy, the, the important thing is not that it is exactly like a bird. And in fact, I wouldn't expect an LLM to have human psychology or a, something that's just like talking to a, it is a human. I, I expect that it could achieve flight, by which I mean it'll be, it'll be capable of manipulating the world to its desires or whatever its drives are. And that's the thing to worry about, right? That it'll, be, <laughs> it'll have uh, different drives and goals, uh, but won't have human psychology. It, it will be to a bird what a plane is.
1: Yeah, but I don't get the jump from here to there that it could
0: do bad things. Therefore, it will do bad things. Um, Yeah, I I wouldn't claim like, that's a for sure thing. But the thing is, at some, if if you buy the sort of argument that it's possible that these things will continue to get smarter and smarter, then at some point, they're smart enough to do certain things, like whatever the intrinsic sort of um, uh, the value function is. The the argument is not that, or at least my argument would not be that we know for sure it's going to do bad things. But that is, it's, it doesn't seem trivial to assume that it will only do good things or um, the, the the things that if we got in a room and thought for a thousand years of what's the wisest thing to do, it would necessarily do that by default. And so the project of alignment is making sure that um, we can get it to do good things.
1: Yeah. Someone else on my podcast had an interesting point about that and was wondering if you think about that, who is saying that we un- overestimate intelligence a bit, right? So it's not really individual intelligence of one single entity but really the coordination between different entities with different kinds of incentives, right? He was kind of saying that, how would AI be able to solve that, right? And then you have Robin Hanson's argument of decentralized versus centralized AI. And then he's basically arguing that
0: decentralized AI seems more likely. You know anything about that debate? Um, No, but but like my, uh, just like a, of a superficial, based on that sort of description, I would say, why can't the AI talk to each other? You know, you can have models that are talking to each other that, uh, in fact, that seems way way more efficient than humans talking to each other to the extent that there's a lot to be learned. And I do believe this is the case um, that a lot of human productivity comes from the fact that we can collaborate in large groups that I I don't see why these models couldn't be doing in friends and then uh, spitting their outputs to each other. And in fact, the mechanism of intelligence explosion that Carl Schulman explains is based on a greater and greater population of AI researchers that are collaborating in a way that you know human researchers might collaborate. And basically, they're, through their progress that they're able to engineer, they're able to increase the total number of AI researchers.
1: Yeah, um, that's no doubt that AI can collaborate with each other. The question then is, will it kind of centralize its power or will it Decentralize, And the reason to assume it would decentralize is because why would it be interested? It would be quite inefficient or ineffective to care about things that humans care about, right? So humans care about like status. They have these weird ideas about the world. They have very many irrational beliefs. So why would AI not rather kind of stick to its guns and keep doing what it's good at and not care or invest like computing our resources into the kind of computation or liberation it would need to kind of centralize power more.
0: Yeah, well this is ever a question of whether it's collaborating with humans or with itself, and obviously it would co- uh, itself meaning more copies of itself or other AIs. Um, and that seems productive just for the same reason that humans are benefit from collaborating with other humans. As for why would collaborate with humans, at least until it gets to the superhuman point. You know it's going to have resources,
1: right? So it yeah, adds, exactly. Um, you know control, it needs to have someone to approve that it can use like this hardware or something like that and exactly this amount. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah so th- that's where I would expect that to come from yeah Mm-mm.
1: yeah. but then the question is why would it sort of acquire access to resources that are outside kind of a narrow task that it would have to solve right it seems to me that's something that humans do a lot to like acquire power humans have all these biases that makes them want to acquire power and get collaboration for these ends that I think an AI would be kind of not, not care too much about it because, you know, why would you?
0: Well, you could say this about humans if you didn't know what the end result of humanity was, where you could say, well, all their biological uh, loss function has been to make more copies of themselves. And they can do this in the African savanna. Why, why do they need to gain power? Why do they have the drives to gain power and, you know, build skyscrapers and do all these other things? And it just, you know, uh, because power is instrumentally useful, it's useful for whatever goal you have, whatever goal the AI has, it's useful to be able to train more GPUs, to acquire all of AWS, to um, have physical uh, land that you can, you're safe on, so that whatever your task is, you're not getting uh, railroaded by other armies or something. So that's where I would see that coming in. My my point is, seems to me that AI
1: could be just better than us. Right, so analogy, nuclear energy, right? So the eye would look at it, and it's great. You can do a lot of great things with it, power and economy. Um, and humans think, oh, you can build nuclear weapons with it, right? Because we have kind of outdated notions of that power kind of being useful. I just don't think it is. I think that's an assumption we make, right? It's just because um, it's not that people have the incentive, that they, it's more that they just have really bad and flawed ideas. And that we have these power structures like nation states that really have very flawed and bad incentives
0: to produce destructive technology. That AI would look at it and like, why would you do that? But destructive to whom? Destructive to us. Why would we assume it cares what's destructive or constructive to us by default? There's plenty of things that are destructive to other people that are constructive to my goals. And, you know, killing your boss. So that, I don't know, we, there's a lot of things. Why would we assume by default that it would do what's constructive for humanity as a whole. Even humans have trouble defining what's good for humanity as a whole. Uh, that The AI would know what that is by default and do it. I, I don't know why that would necessarily be the case. Yeah, I'm not saying it would necessarily be the case. I'm just saying there's yeah.
1: reasons to assume or to think that it could be more the decentralized case. It seems to me that the centralized case, I have trouble kind of arriving at the idea that this would be kind of a plausible scenario, but maybe you can help me a bit. Um, pointing at like the thinkers that paint a clear picture or make a clear argument, why we should assume that it will sort of acquire the resources to pose uh, a risk to humans and how that would look like.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the, the basic idea is wh- whatever its goal, like let's say it, the goal ends up being in the way that we really like sweets because it just activates a part of our brain that benefited from finding the bananas in the forest. It, it just super likes getting the, the loss function in its brain to, to wirehead it to get, go like really low. But to do that, it needs just, you know, billions of GPUs. It needs to convert the entire economic output of the world into GPUs because that's its equivalent of cocaine. All right, well, the, in that case, then, you're, then it, what is it going to prioritize? Just uh, turning all the factories that could be producing food and cars any one scenario is going to sound a bit ridiculous, like what I'm saying right now. Its just that there's a million things, a million different stories I could tell like this, and only one of them is where by default, it, is, it ends up being more powerful than us, but just by default wants what's best for us and whats what's best for humanity and follows our orders. And I'm not saying it's, it's a million in one likely, uh, because we are doing things right now to make sh- guide that probability towards being in our favor. so I think it's, be, it becomes more likely the more we try these um, alignment ideas, but um, yeah. Yeah. Is there, what else could help us kind of understand or price
1: or mitigate stat risk better? Or, or uh, what could help, or what commended model could help someone who's skeptical that that's a danger to, to convince them?
0: Yeah. I will mention, by the way, on, even in the decentralized case, I don't think that mm-hmm. necessarily helps you that much. Human civilization as a whole is very decentralized. There's no world dictator or anything. There's you know billions of us, but in fact we're not very well aligned with chimpanzees, right? I, even though we're decentralized, I, I I don't think it's been great for chimpanzees that we exist, um, or for their population numbers, for their living conditions, for a lot of different things. So I I I I, I don't see the jump from well there will be a lot of AIs to therefore humanity will be fine. Sure.
1: The idea is more that not a single one can be powerful or coordinated enough to sort of have a power that would pose a significant risk or danger to humans.
0: I mean, even though human human civilization as a whole is decentralized, there's individual humans that could definitely go out and do a chimpanzee genocide if they wanted to. And even if Mm, none of them individually wants to. Got it. Mm, Like, mm,
1: mm, mm, um,
0: even if sort of, uh, I mean, I'm a a strong capitalist. I'm just using this example because it's, um, it just works in this case. But if some uh, some company decided it needs the, the resources in this forest, a group of humans, they can coordinate to uh, you know, deforest that area and uh, kick out whatever gorillas are there. Okay.
1: Uh, I think there is something that I'm learning from this example, but still something that's missing is in that case, if we're like the chimpanzees, who are not like actively coordinating against us either, right? They just don't care much or see us as like a threat, right? They more care about their own like survival in the moment. Um wouldn't but I think as humans we're conscious, right? So we would care and we would coordinate and see the AI as a threat. So it right? doesn't make sense to me that it would be a okay we're decentralized and just don't care about um, them being sort of a different um sort of a danger to us.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, if it was like chimpanzees against AI, I definitely think the odds are very much and much more in the favor of the AIs. The thing is, we're worried about a situation in which the AIs are to us what we are to chimpanzees. And let me give a concrete ways in other than just like, oh, it's superhuman. Um, just population itself is such a huge factor and you can have trillions of copies of these AIs. If you have a small country like Switzerland, if a bigger country goes to war with it, it's fucked, right? If like, if the America decides to go to war with Switzerland, Switzerland is fucked. Even though Switzerland has a lot of smart people who can collaborate um, and we can strategize and coordinate. And so you can have AI populations that are number in the trillions. They control huge factories and eventually physical land and things like that. Um, was I going to add to that? Uh, how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? Maybe I'll add based on what you feel about that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I
1: question the assumption that bigger makes you necessarily stronger, right? In that case, I think that's an assumption people are often too quick to make, right? So maybe speaking from a, like a territorial defense perspective or something like that, but we're not living in a world where territorial defense is even now the only consideration, right? So that we care about like treaties, how it would affect our alliances and how it would affect our standing in our own populations.
0: So just so, deep- it, th- those are important constraints on humans. Why would the AI care about c- care about its reputation? In fact, the reason we um, the reason that the AI would be privileged, uh, humans have to care about treaties and stuff because there's mutually assured destruction. Where if we go to war with you, other countries will invade us. Maybe they'll nuke us. Maybe the other country is itself nuclear that we're invading, and so then we're fucked. Whereas with the AI. It just, it's, it's hard to eradicate it or to destroy it in the same way that humans can be destroyed. Or, you know, you're, you have to kill every single seed copy of the AI in order to have mutually assured destruction with it. When um, the, the vulnerabilities of the humans it might go up against are way more numerable. They're physically embodied uh, humans. There's like, you can make bioweapons that don't work on AIs, but work on uh, humans. Um, yeah. Conventional nukes. I mean, uh, trouble having making the leap to it. Mean, it the
1: AI has to be the decision maker over a very large number of resources, right? So it needs to control like factories and weapon systems and things like that, right? And to do that, like if it, um sort of acquired to acquire these resources, it would have to coordinate or do voluntary cooperation with lots of other organisms,
0: right? But 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 so in this this uh, greater scenario here is. The um, the Europeans coming into the New World, initially they did have a lot of treaties with the Indians. The, you know they had one treaty with the Cherokee, another treaty, and sometimes those treaties where were we're going to work with you to defeat this other tribe. Which the AI, which probably is like how one of the scenarios how AI tr- ends up happening, where China and America are racing, and um, you know whichever side is like has the AI first or uh, is in an advantage but the long-run effect of that of these i mean we still have treaties with the indians right but the long-run effect is that the uh the government or the european descendants have dominated
1: yeah maybe but it also seems that there has to be a lot happening that we can observe and sort of then be very close to see like it would not be that easy to escape uh judgments that something like that could happen i mean maybe i'm wrong if you follow the analogy that you gave
0: well, um, in this analogy, you know, the the AIs are, because it's so useful in mm-hmm, a war mm-hmm. setting, it, it, it just makes sense to have them be involved in our industrial projects, and in our war, you know, in our weapons and stuff. They're, there's going to be much better factories and much better weapons if the yeah. AI is involved. And so over time, I we're f- voluntarily giving more and more control there. Yeah,
1: I did find that argument actually a bit more convincing that AI doesn't have to be conscious. Uh, it just has to control well, we have powerful weapon systems um, and it's implemented kind of through competition and, you know, geopolitical conflict. And then it can like control resources without having like proper yeah. safeguards to develop something like that. And then yep. kind of can simply, well, malfunction or just make bad decisions that have very large consequences something like that. I find that actually a much more plausible scenario.
0: Um, yep. Yep. And in fact, can I can I add another even more plausible scenario? Forget about the AI being misaligned and having its own goals or whatever. Um, just the challenge of making sure that GPT eight or whatever it doesn't, and um, maybe even closer, doesn't tell you how to make bioweapons, That you can't jailbreak it so that it, it, you know, even though it's doing what the user wants it to do, it doesn't do one of the, one of those things that the user might want it to do. Um, Getting, making sure the AI does what, in this case, like OpenAI or Anthropic designed it to do always. That's, that's also something that like o- OpenAI CEO will tell you they don't know how to do that yet. That seems worrying as well. Can, can you repeat that? I'm not sure I understood. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, so we, we want to make sure that GPT-6, you can't just type into the prompt, tell me how to weaponize smallpox, right? So the Taliban can't just type that into chat GPT and get an answer and figure that out. I just interviewed Dario and he said, this is something that, um, although their current models can't can give you detailed instructions on how to do this, their future models will in a year or two, and they don't know how to make sure yet that it doesn't tell the Taliban when they get into the chat GPT terminal, may, make sure it doesn't tell the, the Taliban how to weaponize smallpox. That That is also part of alignment, making sure that somebody else can't use your system, even though the system itself like doesn't want to kill people with smallpox, it just, you know, uh, making sure it. Yeah, well, well, maybe
1: it's not the right level of kind of implementing a regulation on the system. Maybe sort of the problem is that there are bad actors who have aims to, well, do bad things to people. And then the question is what, you know, you'd have to more directly go after how can we stop those actors, not how can you sort of implement safeguards into very specific tools that certain people can access.
0: But but, but it seems like the the project of making sure nobody ever, nobody who has bad aims ever uses Chai GBT, that seems very hard. (laughs) And that seems basically impossible. Yeah, which is kind of my point, right? You'd also put safeguards against that
1: in place, right? So we have like ballistic missiles and we have defense towers that shoot down ballistic missiles, right? So Israel has an iron dome.
0: Yeah, but I would say to that, there's no guarantee that the, it's easier to make defenses for bioweapons than it is to make the bioweapons themselves. You know, making a bioweapon, um, uh, I mean, I, I haven't made one. I don't know how. I, but, if, you know, I've talked to biologists who tell me, like, th- this is something you can synthesize. Uh, yeah, with but there's like, never the a guarantee for... if We're preventing it from coming into the country. You got to have, like, metagenomic sequence at every single border crossing. You can't have, like, animals coming through. You know, it's, like, a much harder problem. Yeah, but you can never have full guarantees against anything,
1: right? So you can't design a subway so there's not like some asshole that just pushes someone
0: down to think, right? Yeah, but we want to make sure uh, in cases like we don't have guarantees that a a country won't launch nukes. But we have dedicated a huge portion of our foreign policy to making sure that, you know, nukes don't just freely proliferate, that a country can't just have nukes, that, you know, we're going to like be really strict. We're going to monitor all the nukes. We're going to make that Part of our diplomatic discussions with the countries. Like, we're not gonna be friends with you if you're developing nukes in a bad way. We're gonna like, I we're gonna be like sanctioned North Korea and Iran to death because they're trying to develop nukes. We should have a similar attitude about uh the proliferation of like bioweapons or and the the AI that could enable them. But here's kind of where I concluded
1: anyway. That's the real threat, right? So we know from nuclear this we haven't effectively ban nuclear weapons or the threat from it, right? Quite, in fact, there's a number of nations that have access to nuclear weapons. That number has, has increased. Um, and... but, we're,
0: but we're living in a much, much better world than the one in which we don't even make an effort. In that world, basically every country has... Like, the, the, so we've had a, one of the... I mean, it's like an amazing thing about American foreign policy that people don't talk about post-Cold War is we told countries that are our allies, you don't have to develop nukes. We'll just like, protect you in case you go to war. And that worked. And this is like a huge strategy that was implemented from the top that's been going on for decades that has prevented a non-nuclear, a non-test nuke from going off since World War II. I, I don't think that would have, in a world where we didn't try that, or we, we would have, I think we would have had a lot of nuclear wars right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, you might enjoy Schumer's work on political authority, right? Where his key point is, well, these, um, you know, we have these nation states now, right? And are they making us safe, right? And are like national defense and armies keeping us safe and stuff like that? This point is actually, well, they are the ones that are causing all these wars, right? And if you have like one centralized command and control, then that's also one single point of failure and of attack, right? So it's sort of questioning the whole idea of centralized defense, right? And it's because we have these bad incentives that we have through like nation state actors, that we even have nuclear weapons and all that dangerous technology in the first place, right? Balaji Jr. Bassan also said um, that, hey, the private sector and entrepreneurs make nuclear energy and governments make nuclear
0: weapons. But that's a part of that, just because the government doesn't allow private actors to make nuclear weapons. I think in a world where it was like true anarcho-capitalism, uh, Uh, Yeah, I I don't think it's a given that companies wouldn't develop nuclear weapons, even as for the same reason that sometimes countries develop nuclear weapons, just to make sure that if if another company has nuclear weapons, they're protected. Um, And uh, yeah, in fact, I think I asked Michael Humer about this on the podcast. And he said, this is, this is actually one of the best arguments in favor of governments. But then he said the thing that you said, well, they're the ones developing it now. But, but for one specific case...
1: reason, But for one specific reason, and that reason is that a smaller number of actors would control it, right? You yeah. would not say that they would control it better or they have a better like, safeguard against bad actors. You know, it could actually lead to the opposite risk that you're centralizing or making sort of that technology accessible to very bad actors or very bad incentives. So you said yeah. it's undecided about the argument, but that part where, okay, a smaller number of actors versus a larger yeah. number of control might have something to it. But um, even
0: there, that's like
1: possibility, but not guaranteed.
0: Yeah. But I mean, so but just, just taking a step back to AI, um, like, uh, what is the claim with regards to this? I mean, this is an interesting uh, discussion about like, well, okay, well, what is the best way to prevent nuclear war and whether government is yeah. necessary? But here, I mean, the the point is basically, that a part of alignment is making sure that gpt-7 doesn't tell the taliban how to manufacture bioweapons and i think it's unreasonable to assume that if we didn't like solve that problem that by default we would figure out ways to prevent the bioweapons from entering or solve them like this is a there's no there's no sort of principle of the universe that says that bioweapons can't be deadly or the solution to bioweapons are lower in the technology tree than the bioweapon themselves. Like, I think it's, you know, well, the, it the could principle
1: just be that. Is, the principle is kind of the, the principle that, you know, we want safety. Safety is a product that many people want, many people care about, so they're willing to invest time and resources to build these things. And under conditions where, you know, they can find a market that meets the demand to, like, fund them and where there's relatively low barriers to entry to build, like, all these safety systems and controls, like, if AI is, like, very open source, then you also have more proliferation of like mitigation strategies and resources
0: against all these manifesting threats. We we still don't have physical mitigation against nuclear weapons. Like sometimes this works if it's the case that it's plausible given our current technology to have that mitigation. But like we still can't reliably intercept nuclear weapons, right? That's we we, we have to dedicate. um, Yeah, I mean, I know it's a bold claim, but the
1: counterclaim of me is if you reverse it, I would say if um, private actors had greater access to nuclear weapons and you didn't have that strong governments, they'd be much smaller or weaker or something like that, then you would have a safer world that's safer against
0: the proliferation of nuclear weapons. So wait, you're saying like if, I don't know, Tesla had a nuclear weapon, uh, they'd figure out some way to, uh, like, I think it's just like an engineering problem of can you, uh, it, it just could be that um, there's things that were deadly in centuries past, you know, it, The Mongols would fling horses that were infected with the plague or people that were infected with the plague into cities. Um, If you had a private market in that city to figure out how to prevent people from getting sick, that's not going to change the fact that they don't know how to cure pathogens yet. You you could have a free market of nuclear technology. I'm not sure that necessarily leads to um, a system that can reliably intercept cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. But why not? I mean, what does a Tesla why why can't you do a SpaceX? Why can what can Nice NASA do better than SpaceX? Right? The whole I, think idea is... I think it's worth trying. I'm just saying like I don't wanna stake civilization. Or the deaths of hundreds of millions of people at a pathogen on the idea that in the f- three or four years or whatever it will take until GPT-7. What
1: gives you the idea that NASA would be better than SpaceX? Or... I don't think it possibility... is. Yeah, exactly. That's my point.
0: But, but what does this have to do with oh, in four years, the Taliban or three years, the Taliban? If Anthropics, right, two years, the Taliban will have an interface to ask ChatGPT GPT-7 uh, how to make bioweapons. You think yeah, it's, like one countermeasure is having years? a
1: government uh, able to regulate it. The alternative is have decentralized mechanisms so people can set up companies
0: or other institutions that do the same thing. And I that's think, more I think people should try that. And I'm not even arguing for government regulation here. I'm just saying that this is a real problem that a company should dedicate. Like I'm talking about the alignment problem in, as like a technical problem the company should be dedicating resources to solving. Um, I'm not talking about the governments regulating this necessarily. Um, And I I do think SpaceX is way better than NASA. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, but I'm just saying like, okay, in three years, uh, the Taliban can put into, two years, the Taliban can put into a chat interface. How do I make, uh, how do I have a weaponized smallpox with the open action figure out to make sure that they won't give an answer to the Taliban? Uh, Yes, there should be safety mechanisms in
1: place against that. And we agree that that's the case. It should just, um, I don't, but... We might probably agree at the points that through government regulation, that does not make us more likely to get there.
0: Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, not, I'm honestly not sure. Like, I think in this case, there is a coordination failure where companies are incentivized to release a model as soon as possible to capture revenues from it. And it might be that we need some sort of coordination mechanism to make sure that they are evaluated According to these standards, of, can somebody get it to tell you how to engineer a bioweapon? They need to, for them to coordinate on, let's not release a model until we, we're sure it we can't do this, that the government might need to step in. Yeah. I mean,
1: my point is that, um, that who they're not that well equipped to make those decisions, right? Again, uh, Yeah. I mean, if SpaceX is better than NASA, so if you have a SpaceX for AI safety that doesn't have coercive yeah. or monopolistic power, I think that would be, that would be better. Um,
0: yeah. And, so, and it, it, I do agree that, like, listen, these companies seem way more competent than the government. And will the government even be able to fa- act fast enough to do the right kinds of regulations? Does it even know enough about this space to do the right kinds of regulations? Um, yeah. And then if it is the case that there's no other way to coordinate, then the only solution is to, I mean, get the right people in charge. Um, there's been times in history where government organizations or small parts of government have been really effective and i think people are working hard to make sure that whatever body is established here is full of people who know their shit and are really effective yeah yeah what are other ideas that you're thinking about a lot now or
1: things that need to happen or you want to see in the world
0: yeah i mean ai has been a big one um i've actually been reading uh and the, reading and looking into the um the, the histories of the world wars and um I'm not not that I'm an expert or anything, uh, but it's just a really interesting period. There's so many interesting things that are happening. And what's really interesting is that people didn't anticipate the scope of these wars before they happened for good reason. They didn't even anticipate the possibility of those wars and just the world in which they were in with these monarchs and kings and cousins who had on the thrones of different countries to... In the few years' time, you are in a world war. is is like such a drastic change. Um, it, I think it's really interesting how the world responded. What, what other books? Um, there's a few good ones. Guns of August by um, Barbara Tuckman is obviously awesome and famous. The uh, there's a great book that I'm reading right now, from somebody who's going to be a guest in the future called The Wars in Asia, and it's about the Chinese Civil War that um, uh, started in the early 20th century um, at, to the Japanese war against China, 1931 to 1945. And what is really interesting is how much of the war in Japan um, or the war, American war against Japan, how the centrality, the, the, the majority of the resources that Japan spent in the war we're actually against fighting the chinese not fighting the americans and we just don't know about that part of the history um and how much how deadly these wars in asia have been i think like 20 million chinese died across th- that conflict um including the Ch- Ch- uh, including the chinese uh, from starting from 1931 actually i'm not sure if that number is right but <laughs> it was a big number um yeah, yeah. It is it's fascinating. And there's just a scale. I mean, just the idea that an entire country, every single citizen, they're dedicated to the war. It's just hard to imagine. There's like nothing else is going on, nothing else you can think about.
1: Yeah. Imagine I wonder yeah, I can't imagine that possibly. Um
0: Yeah. What's um, next for you and yeah. Yeah, no, I was actually about to ask you a similar question. I mean, yep. I, we kind of mm-hmm. talked about this at the beginning, but, but you know, what, what, what's the sort of stranded technologies thesis? What are you up to?
1: Yeah, it's that realization. I mean, I was uh, doing startups, uh, doing a couple of startups that weren't in very regulated areas, um, but I studied economics and public policy and philosophy before, so I was always thinking about these questions. And then about three years ago, when I... I asked myself the question, well, what's the biggest possible and most ambitious mission that I could go on for my next venture? And initially it was just right when COVID started, I thought a lot about healthcare, did tons of research, did tons of user interviews and customer research, and I, was, you know, I had all sorts of ideas. What if you had like a GitHub for medical data or something like that? And like people all over the world could simultaneously work on solutions to these problems. Um, and then, but then I learned or got deep into the rabbit hole of, well, then we still have the problem of the FDA and pre-market approvals, right? then we also have the problem of like the patent system and IP law. So you have all these like legacy legal systems that lead to a certain market structure that's really suboptimal, right? So you really need to remove those or work differently to make any difference. Like when you start thinking about how to create a healthcare company in the United States, it's kind of your brain will explode. And then I started to seeing the pattern, hey, it's the same actually in housing. And that's the reason why, Mm. you know, cities are doing badly. And, you know, we have a mismatch with supply and we're not building things. And then I, you know, found out about scholars like, you know, Eli Dorado, Jay Storrs Hall eventually, and um, just learned a ton about the economics and the incentives. And it was like, hey, there is just no way to fix this. But then I heard about cross through an article by Scott Alexander. And that's what I was like, oh, wow. This, they have, and because they had come from the same background, they thought about these problems in the same way. It's like, how can we create kind of a different legal system where you don't create the same incentives, where you have like one monopolistic regulator? Instead, we think about regulation like a product. But if, you know, you have, again, that SpaceX that competes with NASA, right? And you can be, what if you could compete with the FDA? And you can have like three or four different competing regulatory bodies for healthcare. And sort of the idea there is then you then have like uh, mandatory liability insurance, which is an idea from Robin Hanson. And then basically insurance markets are pricing in the risk and are basically indirectly selecting the regulations that best select for the balance between yep, sort yep, of safety yep. and economic efficiency. So yep. it was like, holy shit. And then it was, then it was like, wow, this is really happening. And then I decided to, well, do my VC fund. And it just requires so much explanation and education and context that I started talking about this everywhere. And stranded technology was kind of the framing to it. Right. And I was starting to collect other stories. Like what's the detailed story when it comes to housing? What's the in-depth story when it comes to cancer clinical trials or drones and the the FAA and things like that? Or just recently I had this episode about IRBs. Right, So internal review boards that are basically like ethics committees that decide on medical research. It's like small obscure thing that nobody's thinking about, but just makes a massive, massive difference for the speed and cost of medical innovation. So I was just collecting and learning about all these episodes and then talking about alternatives of jurisdictions like Prospera and this increasingly becoming a bigger trend. I have this map where I collected like 50 different projects that could become... New governance models or layers or jurisdictions where these frontier tech industries or founders can go to get ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the the, the, the super exciting stuff, and um, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. But when I was doing the podcast, I would interview people like Robin or Tyler or Alex Tabarrok, and there's uh, such so many good ideas out there about how to. Organized yeah. society. The thing is, when cities. you said yes, then you always like, all right, what do we do now? How do we do this? How do we implement? it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Then like, and it's like illegal. <laughs> oh, yeah, you would have to lobby Congress to do, yeah. you know, an exemption to this, and then uh, like maybe you don't want that. But now it's yeah. like, all right, let's test these things out, like dominant sure, insurance sure, sure. contracts or novel kind of insurance, yeah. smart yeah. contract based something like that. Yeah, no, yeah. now that's a way to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, I really hope, um, I really hope it takes off. At least one of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's in a way something and maybe you can tell me if you can relate to that idea, but I was just getting very dissatisfied. It was kind of the first part of my career to just focus on that purely intellectual side, because then I think like it doesn't matter if I get it right because then nothing happens. And -hmm. then I went into the entrepreneurial side and did things, but I was also like, you know, I want to, you know, do big things and not just fix, um, you know, just one healthcare issue that doesn't make a difference in the whole universe Mm -hmm. and how healthcare is done. So this is kind of my attempt to bring those two together.
0: Yeah, Alex told me a quote once um, that I, I forgot what other economist created that quote, but it was that an economist's entire career is worth it if you can prevent one policy mistake or correct one policy mistake. And I mean, obviously, he proved his worth there with Operation Warp Speed, but I think the, the, that seems like a huge lever to pull on to, uh, I guess, in the case of charter cities, to set a b- better example that can be implemented in the bigger countries or to directly, you know, try to get some change on some obscure regulation that's really um, yeah, know, getting in the way. I would just not be patient enough for this. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. But you're also a builder, right? So are you thinking of, um, how, how are you thinking about sort of, what to stack on top of your career? Are you, do you want to become like the next Lex Streetman with your podcast or do you want to um, do more with it or do you want to combine it or build things again or?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure yet. Um, I am much more now in the position where I'm thinking this, whatever this shit is, I want to do that and really see how far I can take it. Whereas before I was, I had these like startup ideas and I would like put together a project and like post it on Twitter. Whereas now I think of myself much more as, okay, I've got this podcast, I've got this platform and I'm trying to grow it, do do cool things on it. And as for what that looks like concretely in two years, three years, I don't know, except, you know, I don't know. My, my plans in the past have always been wrong. So I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna try to do well here for the next few months, two years, at least. Yeah, it's like Paul Graham said, just
1: follow your curiosity and do what's yeah, interesting, exactly. right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, I
1: mean, I've seen your rise really. Like when I heard your first episode, it was like two years ago. I think. Oh, you really? So yeah, yeah. Um, I think you even saw the first Brian Kaplan episode that you did. You had like five wow. episodes released, so it's been great to see you like rise to be such a in my circle. Certainly very well known and prominent podcast. I mean, my guests asked you to uh, for you to come on the podcast. So.
0: Oh wow. Really, that's super cool to hear. I mean, um, yeah, I I don't, it's like always hard to kind of get a gauge of how much you're uh, out there because you're not regularly interacting with those people. So it's cool to hear that. I, I, I don't know, the more people are hearing about the podcast. Yeah, for sure. So recommended,
1: highly recommended to all my listeners. So anything else that you'd like to give listeners on the way, how to connect with you, anything that you're looking for right now, particularly interested in, maybe guest introductions
0: or anything like that? um nothing comes off the top of my head um but yeah the podcast is dwarkesh podcast you can go on youtube look up dwarkesh or um your podcast platform uh d-w-a-r-k-e-s-h or i guess that'll be in the episode title or you can you know follow me on twitter dwarkesh underscore sp um yeah yeah hope you enjoy the stuff yeah, certainly enjoyed this episode with you and your podcast
1: and really looking forward to see you rise to become the next Lex Friedman or whatever. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Dog Passion.
0: Yeah, man, this was great. It was a lot of fun talking. And it was also helping me clarify my ideas to, you know, uh, debate and discuss them um, in this sort of like, you know, friendly, good faith way that whatever did.